Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. In the middle of Revelation, we are now in chapter 12, and that is exciting. Um, We've literally covered half the book, and now we begin to cover the second half of the book. And it's significant because, you know, when you look at all these commentaries and all these uh, folks that have studied Revelation for years, some will um, say it's two books, the first 11, uh, the first 11 chapters and the second. Um, because we just finished the seventh trumpet last week, and you get to the end, you know, the, 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 the world is now the kingdom of Christ. Uh, and um, yet now we're, we're kind of zooming in and we're seeing why it had to end this way. And that's where we are in chapter 12. Um, let me set it up this way. My, my, my lesson is entitled, A Great Sign in Heaven, and we're going to see what that great sign is. Um, have you ever sat down to watch TV or a movie with a family member or a friend, and you were late to the party. And so you sit down and you kind of, you know, you're kind of getting interested and they're like 45 minutes in and you're like, who is this? What's that? Why did they do that? What's going on? You know what I'm talking about. If you don't start at the beginning and you just kind of jump into the middle of a, of a show or a movie that you kind of get drawn into, all of a sudden it gets your interest, but you didn't see the first half hour and you're wondering, you know, who is this person? How are they connected? What's going on here? And you're questioning the whole plot and who the characters are and things like that. But what we're going to do tonight is we're going to get a really good understanding of why the world is going to end the way it is, okay? And it's this great sign in heaven you're going to see this drama play out. You're going to know who the characters are, and you're going to understand why it had to end this way. Okay? So look, if you will, in Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony, as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male who is going to rule all nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to His throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God to be nourished there for 1,260 days. Now, after studying this this week, I had to walk away at one point. You know that proverbial saying, Charles, where you just get overwhelmed uh, with the trees, you forget the forest, and it was kind of like that. So I had to back off and had to start over. You can get lost in all these details. You can go, man, what about this? What is that uh, seven heads and ten horns, you know? And, 
And what about those seven crowns? And we could, we could go all day on those details, but I'm going to give you just a, a big 50,000 foot view of what's going on as we look at this passage. There's three things we're going to see about the plot that help us understand why does it all have to end this way. And the first thing is the birth of the Messiah. Uh, rather than getting lost in these details, what's going on? There's a sign in heaven. And here is this woman. She's clothed, interestingly. I mean, can you imagine someone clothed with the sun and the moon's under their feet and they have 12 stars? You don't normally see the, the moon and the stars with the sun unless you're up really early in the morning and you see one still hanging around while the sun's coming up, but you just don't put those together. And so you see this woman, she's pregnant, and then you see this, you know, fiery red dragon. And man, he's imposing, isn't he? And he's just sitting there looking at her and he's waiting for her to deliver her child so he can devour it. That's nasty, isn't it? Um, I, I've always said that when we sing at Christmas time, one of my favorite hymns, Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright. You know, when we sing Silent Night, we're thinking about the nativity scene. We got a pretty nativity scene that we always put out every year in the back of the sanctuary. That's what we know. But when we read Revelation 12, I think we're seeing the spiritual side of that physical, historical event. And the spiritual side was the devil wanted to destroy Christ before he could come into this world and be born. And so this is really about the birth of the Messiah. I'm reminded of Isaiah 7, 14 where the Bible says the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel. Um, this um, arraignment that this woman has, she's clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Who is this woman? Well, when we talk about the birth of Christ, the first thing you would probably think of is the Virgin Mary, right? Because she was the mother of our Lord. But I don't believe that this woman, we don't know her name, keep in mind this is a sign, okay? So there's a lot of symbols here. And instead of getting lost in the symbols, what is the story that these symbols are telling us? And what does the story tell us? And what does that mean, okay? And so some say that this woman is Mary. Some say that it is Israel, and I can see that one because when I read this description of a woman clothed with the sun and the moon and 12 stars, that reminds me of Joseph. You know, he's one of my favorites in the Bible, Joseph, the son of Jacob. Uh, in uh, in uh, Genesis 37, Joseph had a dream and he told his brothers and he said, I had a dream. This time the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the sun and the moon were his parents and the 11 stars were his brothers. In other words, he had a dream that one day his entire family would be bowing down to him, that he would be on a throne, that he would be in a position of authority, that he would be a ruler, which, by the way, that, that did happen. Um, so you can see that symbolism also reminds you of Israel. So, so the event of a birth 
uh, of a male child who's one day going to rule all nations. Obviously, that's Messiah. That's Jesus. That's Virgin Mary. You think of that as an event. Then you see these symbols, and it reminds you of Joseph referring to his family, which reminds you of Israel. Um, but I like what um, Herschel Hobbes says. He helps us uh, get out of the trees and look at the forest. Herschel Hobbes says, However one may regard the woman, in other words, regardless of who you think she is, if you want to say it's Mary or it's Israel, some say it's the church, some say it's all people who have believed, and it just goes, the list is long, okay? But he says, however one may regard the woman, the point is that Christ was born into history, that he might, in the arena of time, refute the false claim of Satan to sovereignty in the universe. And the conflict between Christ and Satan, which had been going on through the ages, was seen on earth in a given period of history. I like that. You'll, you'll, you'll appreciate that quote here in a few more minutes as we go deeper in this. In other words, this, uh, this war between Christ and Satan goes all the way back, okay? Long before Bethlehem when he was born as a baby, okay, to the Virgin Mary, long before that. But before we do that, let me acknowledge one more symbol here, one more detail that might have your imagination running and that is there in verse 6 the woman flees into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God to be nourished there for 1260 days now that reminds me of a couple events too uh, if you remember King Herod wanted to kill baby Jesus the wise man came we come to worship the one who's known as king of the Jews he wanted to know who that was and Please let me know when you find him so I can worship him. But he really wanted to kill him, right? Uh, we know that because when uh, the wise men went back a different way and he realized they weren't coming back to tell him, then he acted on the information that he had and he went to Bethlehem and every male child, two and younger, he had them killed because he wanted to eliminate any kind of political threat, okay? And um, here is... Uh, uh, if you remember the story in, in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, an angel comes and warns Joseph and says, take, take the mother and take the child and flee to Egypt because Herod is trying to kill him. And so they flee to the wilderness, if you will, for a appointed time until it was safe to return. So that, that in the background reminds you of, of this theme here, how she's... Uh, fleeing into the wilderness, a place prepared by God for this such event or occasion to be nourished there for 1,260 days. Now, why 1,260 days? Now, that's very interesting. Um, you've heard me mention this book before. This is not a book you read. This is more like a dictionary and encyclopedia. It's a reference book, Lions, Locust, and the Lamb. Uh, this guy at one of our Southern Baptist seminaries uh, been teaching on Revelation for years, and he's collected what all the experts say about all these images that we don't understand in the book of Revelation, and quite frankly, there's a lot of them, okay? And uh, he interprets key images in the book of Revelation. Well, anyway, his comments, it's a little long, but it's not horribly long, but his comments on this 1260 days, it's a long quote, but I wanted to read it, okay? 
he says this time designation, the 1260 days there in verse 6, emphasizes the church's role in witnessing the gospel. Saints are promised spiritual protection and provision or nourishment to enable them to witness throughout the church era. The two occurrences of 1,260 days, they're found in two different places in Revelation, okay? They're found in the second and third interludes, okay? In the first instance, it relates the time period of witnessing for the church, the two witnesses that we covered a few chapters back. And uh, that was in chapter, well, actually in chapter 11, verse 3. I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. That's the first time it's mentioned. And then the second time it's mentioned is right here in chapter 12, verse 6. He says the wilderness, notice this woman is fleeing into the wilderness. Wilderness alludes to the 40 years that the Israelites were cared for by God. Remember when they left Egypt? and they were in the wilderness, God took care of them. Thus, 1,260 days symbolizes not just testing and trial, but also divine comfort and protection. Um, then it goes on and says, 42 months stresses the persecution of the saints. 1,260 days stresses perseverance, protection, and provision for the saints. And then later on in the same chapter, Revelation 12, if you jump down to verse 14, the woman is given, the same woman, is given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness, there's the wilderness again, where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Um, think three. Um, 1,260 days, a time, times, and half a time. If, if, if a time is a year, then time, times, and half a time is three and a half years. 1,260 days is three and a half years. 42 months is three and a half years, okay? So it's almost like you're saying the same measurement in different ways, okay? I know it's kind of strange, but that's, that's what you see when you study all these symbols. And it goes back to the time, times, and half a time. That alludes to Daniel chapter 7, okay? And uh, he uses that same terminology, and it's an expression for the persecution of God's people. And what John has added to the equation is the promise of spiritual protection and nourishment during this time that enables believers to witness. In other words, the beast out there that's coming, he may kill our bodies, but he cannot take our souls if we belong to Jesus Christ. And so, anyway, last words here that he says about this, and I'll move on. He says, although some interpreters limit the time period to the first century or even to the last days, he says it should be applied to the entire time period of the church's existence. All of these numbers are synonymous, they're parallel. They symbolize the church's character and destiny, which is a paradox of persecution and preservation during the era between the ascension of Christ when he went to heaven and his return, the second appearing. Our job is to witness persecution will happen, but we are promised spiritual protection. So I thought that was interesting. But let's get back to this uh, war between Christ and Satan. Remember the theme of this passage I've just read about the woman, the child, and the dragon. It depicts in a dramatic, symbolic way the birth of Christ, the birth of our Messiah. And it shows you really the history 
of the war between God and Satan. William Hendrickson says it best. He says, The dragon stands in front of the woman who is about to be delivered so that when she is delivered, he may devour her child. In other words, Satan is constantly aiming to destroy Christ. And if you view it this way, then the entire Old Testament becomes one story, the story of the conflict between the seed of the woman and the dragon, between Christ and Satan. Let me, I'm going to do this quickly, but um, I think it's worth doing. Um, If you go back to Adam and Eve in the garden, after they sin and after they're confronted by God, in Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, or, or he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And so um, that's, that's a vivid terminology. If you remember the, uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ years ago, uh, they had a good depiction of, of that verse in prophecy. Uh, early on in the movie, he's walking around and there is a snake and then boom. And just that visual image of the heel going down on that snake's head, you're like the prophecy in Genesis, you know? And so at any rate, uh, it starts there. That's the initial promise by God. God made a promise and he's saying that there's going to be someone who comes, the seed of the woman. Notice he didn't say man, right? The seed of the woman. That paves the idea for what? Virgin birth, okay? From the seed of the woman, uh, someone will come and you may you know, crush his heel, but he will crush your head. He will defeat the evil one. He will defeat Satan. And as you go through the rest of the Old Testament, you see that thread. Uh, I'll, I'll continue, but I'll make it quick. From, uh, from that initial promise, we look from Seth to the flood. Now you might say, Seth, who is Seth? Well, remember Adam and Eve had two boys, Cain and Abel. And Cain killed his brother Abel. And then they had another son named Seth. And if you know your Bible and if you know your genealogy, you'll know that the line that God chose to use from which, you know, Abraham and Israel and all those guys come from, it's Seth. Okay? Seth. Uh, Cain was a murderer. And uh, so from Seth to the flood, you can read all that in the first six chapters of Genesis. But the flood came because God saw how corrupt the earth was. Every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. I believe Satan, he used Cain to kill his brother Abel because he was more righteous. And then when he saw Seth come along, he tried to corrupt everybody because he knew the promise. I mean, God told him, one of these days, the seed of the woman is going to come and destroy you. So now that he has that information, what's he going to do? He's going to try to pinpoint it, and he's going to oppose it at every twist and turn, okay? And so the flood happens, and then from the flood to Jacob. Now, from the flood, the days of Noah, to Jacob, all of a sudden we see it kind of narrowing down. You know, God called Abram, Abram, who became Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. And uh, that was not an easy path either because if you remember, Abraham, uh, he was old. Sarah couldn't have kids. And in Genesis 21, it says, The Lord came to Sarah as he had said, 
And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised, and Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time God had told him. And uh, then, you know, as a miracle as that was, Isaac is born. Then when Isaac gets old and he marries, his wife can't have a child either. And in Genesis 25, 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless, and the Lord was receptive to his prayer, and his wife, Rebecca, conceived. Now, that was miraculous on a couple levels. One, because these two women, you know, could not have children, and then God enabled them to have children. But then the big picture, in the big scheme of things, God had made a promise that one day through the seed of the woman, someone's going to come, the Christ, the Messiah, who will defeat Satan. And so as he begins to make a covenant with Abraham, there's a lot riding on the line. And yet God intervenes, doesn't he? He enables it to happen. I'm sure Satan was thinking, man, so close, right? So close. Then when you look at the time of Jacob to the Jews that uh, went into the desert after Egypt, um, there's a lot there. If you remember the whole rivalry between Jacob and Esau, at one point Esau held a grudge against his brother Jacob. He was so mad he wanted to kill him. And yet it didn't happen. Ultimately, you know, Jacob got out of Dodge, years went by, and then when they finally met, they reconciled. Esau didn't kill his brother Jacob. And it's a good thing because at that point in the Bible, we know that our God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We, we kind of see now where God's at work in humanity, and we're kind of saying something's going to become of this. And it does, because Jacob, ultimately, his name is changed to Israel. And look at Israel. That's where the patriarchs came from. That's where the prophets came from. That's where Messiah comes from. Um, I could talk about Moses and Pharaoh. and at, at every turn, it seems that the devil could use people in different generations to, to squash and thwart the plan of God. And guess what? It didn't happen. And then you have from the time of the wilderness when the Jews left Egypt and they're in the desert to King David. And think about it. God, God made a promise to David and he, he anoints him to be the next king and he's raising him up. He's leading the army and yet Saul is still in power and an evil spirit comes on uh, Saul and he takes the spear and throws it at David not once, but twice, and he still missed. And so you see even there an evil spirit coming on King Saul to take out King David, and it doesn't work. Now, it gets, it gets really good. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to really hurry this up here. But from the days of David, King David, to Queen Athalia, uh, Queen Athalia was a, whew, next to Jezebel, she was a mean woman, okay? Queen Athalia, uh, she... Uh, she comes on the scene in 2 Kings 11, uh, chapter 1, or uh, I mean verse 1, 2 Kings 11, verse 1. When Athelia uh, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to annihilate all the royal heirs. She was queen, the king had died, and now her son has died, and she's kind of in power because she's the queen, and she wants to eliminate all the royal heirs. That, that's, that's bad on a lot of levels, right? Number one, you don't want to be kin to her. Uh, number two, at this point, God, way before her, 
when they first started having kings, David was the second king Israel ever had. God made a promise to David that one day someone would come like him that would rule over Israel, okay? And, and that's Christ. And so for Queen Athelia to want to annihilate all the royal heirs on a big macro level, that could possibly thwart God's plan. You see what I mean? How could God keep a promise to David if all the royal heirs are gone? And so she says, let's annihilate all the royal heirs. And she, was, she thought she was successful. But some smart, godly, wise people took one of the king's sons and hid him for six years. Took care of him right under her nose in the temple. And then they bring him out. His name was Josiah. And he became king at eight years old. You forget about that story. That's one of those good Old Testament stories. Again, I want you to see that throughout history, several twists and turns, Satan has opposed, opposed, opposed the plan and purpose of God. And he fails, he fails, he fails. Okay? Now, from Queen Athelia to King Ahaz. Now, this one's good. I, I didn't realize this until I started studying it. But King Ahaz was in power. And during his time, the uh, enemies around him, at that point, the, the Israel had split. You had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And he was over one of the kingdoms, but not the other. Well, the other kingdom and some of the other enemy nations decided they were going to take him out. They were going to take him out. They were going to take control of that kingdom. And they were going to eliminate him and his descendants. And in Isaiah 7, the Lord says to Isaiah, Go with your son to meet King Ahaz. And say this to him, calm down, be quiet, don't be afraid or cowardly because of these men that are coming after you. He says, this is what the Lord says, it will not happen, it will not occur. Now, based on what I've just shared with you, please realize that because of the promise that God made to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to Jacob, to David... God is giving clues throughout history, throughout the generations. I'm going to keep my promise. It's over here. It's over there. And at every twist and turn, the devil was trying to stop it. He's opposing it every twist and turn. And by the time you get to Ahab, God tells his prophet Isaiah, go tell him it's not going to happen. It won't occur. And that's in Isaiah 7, 7. And you go down three verses, and we're used to hearing this at Christmas, but hear this now with the context that I've just told you. In Isaiah 17, the Lord speaks to, again to Ahaz. He says, ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. And Ahaz replied, I won't ask, I won't test the Lord. And we think that's the perfect Sunday school answer. But remember in Malachi, God says, ask me, test me. Remember when he's talking about tithing. If God's asking you to test him, I guess that's the only exception. No, we're not supposed to test God, but if he's asking you to test him, I suppose you should listen to him, right? Because in Malachi it says that about tithing. Test me and see that I don't open up the windows of heaven. And here he's telling Ahaz, he says, ask me for a sign. 
okay? Just ask me. And he says, no, I won't test the Lord. And then Isaiah says, listen, house of David. Isn't that the peculiar answer? Do you see that? Listen, house of David. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Ahaz. But his answer says, this ain't about you, okay? This ain't about you, Ahaz. This is about the house of David. Is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of God? Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. In other words, I told you to ask me for a sign. You're not asking, so I'm going to give you one. And here's the sign. The virgin will conceive and have a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. Wow. In other words, God says, nothing's stopping this. This seed of the woman that I've been talking about, that I told Abraham about, that I told Jacob about, that I told David about. I'm telling you, house of David, he's coming. Woo! Just had a glory moment, amen? I mean, that's good. That's good. And here he says, I'm giving you the sign. A virgin's going to conceive. And until Jesus came along, we thought, that's a bunch of crock. Who ever heard of a virgin giving birth, right? But what happened in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke? What happened in Bethlehem? It happened, didn't it? From Ahaz to Esther, I'll make this real fast because we've got to get back to Revelation, but I want you to see the big picture here. When you look at King Ahaz and you fast forward to the history of Israel to the time of Esther, I, I can't go there, but you know the story. In the time of Esther, they've been removed from their homeland. They're in a foreign land now, okay? And um, there is a plot by a guy named Haman. He doesn't like it when Mordecai, who is a Jew, refuses to acknowledge his royalty or his dignity, I guess, his authority. And he wants to have him not only killed, but he can't stand anybody else that's a Jew. And so Haman goes to the king and he hatches a plan to have all Jews on a set day exterminated. Now again, back up to the 50,000 foot view, God has now traced a line through the nation of Israel. And He says, the Messiah's coming. And now the devil was using a man to say, oh yeah, I'm going to kill every one of you. He was the Hitler before Hitler. And then here comes Queen Esther, and I won't spoil the story, but if you've never read the book of Esther in the Old Testament, just sit down and read it. It's an, it'd make a movie. It's an awesome story. It's an awesome story. Obviously, in the end, it's Haman that's killed, right? Not the Jews. Yes, I spoiled that one. Sorry. From Esther, from her day, all the way to Bethlehem. Now we've gotten to where baby Jesus was born. It took a while, I know, but here we are. From the days of Esther to Bethlehem, what happens? Finally, the virgin is pregnant, and she gives birth, and she names him Jesus. And then these magi come and worship him, and they show up in the town, and if they've got everybody talking. We've come to worship the king of the Jews. Huh? What? And like I mentioned a few minutes ago, Herod pretended to care. He wanted to know because he wanted to kill this king that had been born. Again, again, when you go back and read Revelation 12, 
you're seeing the spiritual dynamic behind the birth of the Messiah that we celebrate every year at Christmas time. It's the wine. It all had to end this way. Well, let's move forward. We're back in Revelation. We're going to go fast, so stick with me. But in Revelation 12, verse 7, here's the next act of this drama, and that's the defeat of Satan. There in verse 7, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael, and he's an archangel, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail, and there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out. And in case you don't know who the dragon is, it spells it out for us. The ancient serpent, that goes back to the garden, who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they did not love their lives to the point of death. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows his time is short. We talked about the birth of Messiah. Now we're going to talk about the defeat of Satan. He couldn't stop the seed of the woman from being born. He couldn't stop the seed of the woman from not only being born, but coming here to do what his mission was to do, and that is save the world. He died on the cross so that you and I or anybody that's willing to come to him could be saved. So the defeat of Satan. Again, I go back to William Hendrickson. He's got a good quote here. He says, Satan is hurled down from heaven in this sense, namely that he's lost his place as an accuser of the brethren. Now hang on, because I thought the same thing. He's still the accuser of the brethren. That's true, but hang on. He says, Christ was born and rendered satisfaction for sin. Satan has lost every semblance of justice for his accusations against believers. True, he continues to accuse. That's his work even today. But no longer is Satan able to point to the unaccomplished work of the Savior. Christ's atonement has been fully accomplished. Complete satisfaction for sin has been rendered when He ascended to heaven. We live in a day and a time now, 2,000 years after Christ came, died, and rose again and ascended to heaven. Mission accomplished. Okay? The seed of the woman came, and He defeated death, hell, and sin, and the devil. And now, when we are accused by God, all we got to do is point back to the cross. He couldn't stop it. He couldn't change it. He couldn't defeat it. No wonder Romans 8.33 says, Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, and indeed He has. Boy, that's good. Let's finish this chapter real quick, and then we'll wrap it up. The third act of this drama, we've talked about the birth of the Messiah, the defeat of Satan, the dragon, 
And now, to read the rest of this chapter, just a few short verses, the persecution of the saints. Stick with me on this one. In verse 13, When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. And let me take a side note real quick. I've told this story before, but it's been a while. It's one of my favorite stories. A few hundred years ago, there was a king of Prussia, and he did not believe in God. And he finally got to the point to where he didn't want to hear speeches or arguments. He didn't want to get in a debate with people, so he summoned one of the men in his court that was a believer, and he says, all right, I know you're a Christ follower, so I've got one thing for you. I want you to prove that the Bible is real, that the Bible is true, but you can only do it with one word. One word. I don't want a long argument. I don't want a big debate. You give me one word that proves that God is real and the the Bible is trustworthy and true. The guy in his court silently prayed and he said, Your Majesty, I have that word. Now, before I tell you what the word is, what would you use? What word would you say? Jesus, yeah. There's a lot of good words we could use, right? You know what the word was this guy told the king? He said, Israel. Think about that. Think about that in light of what I just shared. From day one, the founding of the nation, to now, if you read the history of Israel, not just Old Testament, but how about in the last century? Go back to Hitler. They shouldn't even be here. And then you read the prophecy in Jeremiah. I don't remember the chapter and verse, but y'all can look it up. There's a verse in Jeremiah that says as long as there's a a sun and a moon and a a sky above and seasons and so forth, I'm I'm giving you the paraphrase version, of course, as long as those things are in place, Israel will always be a nation before God. Wow. You know, the Bible's been banned, it's been burned, and yet it's still here. And the people of Israel, they're still here. What does that tell you? There is a God in heaven. But at any rate, I wanted to share that when it says it persecuted uh, the dragon persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. Let's keep reading. Verse 14. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness. There's that wilderness theme again. Where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Again, here's this unit, whether it's times, times, half a time, 1260 days, 42 months, they all equal basically three and a half years. Uh, It comes up in Daniel. It, It seems to be a marker, if you will, that indicates an intense time of persecution of God's people. Okay? Um, then it says this in verse 15. From his mouth, the serpent... Now, it's funny. We just switched from dragon in verse 13 to serpent in verse 15. But we're talking about the same person. We're talking about Satan. Remember, we already identified him there in verse 9. The dragon, the serpent, the devil, Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. Okay? 
Same, same, same being, same person, if you will. So from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had spewed from his mouth. Again, did you see how that just jumped from serpent to dragon? So the dragon, verse 17, was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. And who are they? Well, it tells you. Those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. And I'm looking at some of them, ain't I? Yeah. So you're some, you're, you, you and I are some of the descendants of this woman because the offspring is characterized by those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. That's you, that's me. This, this legacy of people who have faith in God and in Christ, that goes back to several branches. It's a big family tree, if you will. So, this, the devil, Satan, he can't, he can't keep the seed of the woman from being born. He can't destroy the woman. So now he goes after her children, her descendants. And spiritually speaking, that's anybody who follows Jesus. You and I will be persecuted. Let me give you, I've got about eight minutes here and I'll be done, but let me give you some practical things to think about in light of this. Now go back for a second. In Revelation 11, at the seventh trumpet, the world now becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. The end. But now we want to know, why did it have to happen that way? Because when you go back to the beginning of creation, when you go back to the garden, when you go back to the serpent deceiving Eve and Adam and Eve sinning against God, what was perfect was now fallen and was a hot mess. And God had to do something to save the world and save humanity. And so he tells the enemy what he's going to do. You know, that, that makes me smile, don't it, you? You know, in, in high school, we had a really good football team. We hardly ever passed the ball. If we, had, if we had 50 yards passing, we were doing good. We had two boys. My, my, uh, my, my junior year, we had two boys that were running backs. One was a power runner. We called him Bo because he reminded us of Bo Jackson. It took three, four, five. We had fun counting how many guys it took to get him down. He could bench press a few hundred pounds with his legs. He was short and stocky, and you did not want to tackle that boy because not one person was enough. It took two, three, four, five sometimes to get that boy down. Then the other guy, he was tall and lanky, and he was our speedster. He was our jukester. I mean, he would run like 150 yards to make a 20-yard score. You know what I'm talking about? He'd run this way, then he'd run that way, and then he'd spin around and go this way, and you'd have to follow him like a pinball. And then about the time there's an opening, there he goes. We won the state championship my junior year because it was kind of like thunder and lightning. Nobody could stop them both. They might stop one running back, but they couldn't stop the other. We won. Well, when I look at this, I go, wow. You know, if, if all you do is run the ball, and you line up and you're running the ball every time, 
The other team knows what you're going to do, but they still have to stop it. Well, here is God telling the devil in the garden, the seed of the woman is coming, and he's going to crush your head. And he had all of history to stop it. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. And so here, knowing the themes of this drama in heaven about the birth of the Messiah, the, the, um, the um, defeat of Satan, and the persecution of the saints. It explains why it has to end this way. And through Christ, I want to remind you that we can overcome. One last time, look at this passage. Look in verse 10 and 11. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up. In Revelation 10 and 11, I heard a loud voice in heaven say, okay, this gives us perspective, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have now come. Because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. And then it says they conquered Him, and that they is us, or at least it includes us. They conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony for they did not love their lives to the point of death. Wow. Does that mean I might have to die for Christ someday? You could. I'm not saying you will, but you could. Here's three things I'll give you just rapid fire real fast. Through Christ, knowing this story, you and I can overcome condemnation. Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Remember, he's known as the accuser of the brethren. And when someone accuses you, you're condemned. You know, if, it, if, it's, a, if it's a true accusation and they have proof, they have evidence, then you're guilty and you're condemned. The devil knows all of our dirt. And guess what? If we are in Christ, we've been saved. We are covered by the shed blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good? So one of the things we take away from this story and this heavenly drama is that through Christ we can overcome condemnation because my, our accuser is defeated. And our sins are covered. And we now enjoy a relationship with Christ. There's a second thing I want you to see. Through Christ, we can overcome persecution. I know that's not the one we want to talk about. I don't like thinking about it, but the, the more I live on this earth, the more I'm convinced it's part of the package of being a Christian. We, we're just blessed because of where we live in the world. But it's not like this everywhere else. Quite frankly, it's not looking like it's like this here anymore, if you want to be honest. But in Philippians 1.27, Paul unloaded some gold nuggets. In Philippians 1.27, he says, Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, now listen to this, not being frightened 
in any way by your opponents. And because you don't have fear, this is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God, for it's been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him since you were engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. When Paul came to Philippi, he shared the gospel in jail because he put, it was put in chains for Christ. And then when he wrote this letter to the Philippian church, he was in another place and he was still in chains, not for committing a crime, but for preaching the gospel because people didn't like it and didn't want to hear it. Okay? And so Paul is saying, you know the life I've lived. I'm persecuted because of Christ, and now so are you. And it's par for the Christian life. It's par for the course. It's been granted on Christ's behalf, not only for you to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. You have to bear the cross, right? If you want to wear the crown. And so you and I know how this ends. The devil, the accuser of the brothers and sisters, he is thrown down, he is conquered, and he is defeated. And so in Christ we can overcome condemnation, but in Christ we can overcome persecution. And it says they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. Even if we have to die for Christ, we still win. And it's because of the third one, and this is the last one. The third thing that you and I overcome through Christ is the fear of death. You think about that. You show me somebody that's not afraid of dying, I'll show you someone who's fearless, who's courageous. If there's something that this past year has taught us, it should be about the fear of death. I don't know when I'm going to die. I don't know how I'm going to die. But I do know that one day... I will die. And until I'm prepared to die, I'm really not prepared to live. Just saying. And so the fear of death, through Christ we can overcome the fear of death. One last scripture to give you and I'll be done. In John 11, Jesus was talking to Mary and Martha. And Jesus said, I believe to Martha, in John eleven twenty five, 25, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she gave a good Sunday school answer. She said, Lord, I do believe. And I do believe on the last day that you'll raise my brother Lazarus up. And he said, oh yeah? Hey Lazarus, come out! He had authority to do it right then. He didn't have to wait. That, that's who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. I'm telling you, when you know Jesus, then you can say to live is Christ, to die is gain. The world sees it as a loss. And when you're a follower of Christ, it's not a loss, it's a gain. And even if you have to die for Christ, it's a, it's a gain. What was the, uh, oh my goodness, Jim Elliott, one of the missionaries years ago that got killed by a cannibalistic tribe because he wanted to share the gospel with them. 
I believe it was him who said, what is it? He who is, uh, I'm going to mess this up so y'all help me out. He, I should have wrote this down. Thank you, Devin. He He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Did I get it right? Something like that. Thank you, Devin. Uh, that's it. I mean, think about it. We're no fool if we give up what we can't keep in order to gain what we can't lose. Let me put it in Jesus' terms. If you save your life, you're going to lose it. But Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake, you get to keep it. That's what Jesus said. And so, through Christ, we can overcome condemnation because the accuser is defeated. We can overcome persecution because we've overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And also through Christ, we can overcome the fear of death. Man, we're on the winning team, y'all. We need to act like it. We need to be reminded of it. We need to be bold and courageous. And so tonight, I leave you with one last thought. Will you continue to be faithful to the Lord, no matter the cost, no matter the consequences? Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. Thank you for this word from the word. I pray that we'll be encouraged and strengthened. And Lord, I pray that we'll be reminded, Lord, that you alone are God and that history is your story of what you've been doing from the beginning of time all the way up until our day and all the way to the very end. Lord, we know how it ends. One day you will rule and reign forever. And Lord, for that we give you all the praise, honor, and glory. Lord, remind us of who we are and whose we are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.